Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news and Hoosier law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Alexis Schrake, Indiana Lawyer reporter and your host this week. Thanks for joining us. As always, I'm here in our Monument Circle studio with Daniel Carson to give you the rundown on the week's news. Plus, I chat with David Duncan, Indy Bar's newest president, about his goals for this year. So let's get started. Today is Wednesday, February 7th, 2024, and these are your headlines. Daniel, why don't you start us off with some news about federal judicial confirmations? A trio of Indiana federal judicial nominees were confirmed in the last week of January by the U.S. Senate. Joshua P. Kolar, formerly a magistrate judge on the Indiana Northern District Court, has been confirmed to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. The Senate confirmed Kolar January 30th to the appellate court with a 66-25 vote. Kolar was nominated last July to fill the vacancy created by the 2022 death of Seventh Circuit Judge Michael Kahn. A pair of U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Indiana judicial vacancies were also filled after the Senate confirmed St. Joseph Superior Judge Crystal C. Briscoe and Elkhart Superior Judge Gretchen S. Lund by wide margins. Lund was confirmed by an 87-6 vote, while Briscoe was confirmed with a 67-32 vote. Quote, that is a pretty strong bipartisan vote, and I think Indiana Senator Todd Young's support was critical, said Carl Tobias, a University of Richmond School of Law professor, regarding Briscoe's vote. According to Tobias, Lund received the smallest number of negative votes among the 127 Biden administration federal district judge nominees who received roll call votes. Briscoe and Lund will fill the vacancies created by Judges Teresa Springman and John DiGiulio taking senior status on January 23, 2021 and July 17, 2023, respectively. Thanks, Daniel. Staying with the federal courts, it was announced by the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Indiana that Senior Judge William C. Lee died on January 20th. Lee was 85 and passed away peacefully, the court announced. The Hoosier native was born in Fort Wayne and left to earn his undergraduate degree from Yale University and then his J.D. from the University of Chicago Law School in 1962. Lee was former President Ronald Reagan's first appointee to the federal bench in July 1981. He served as chief judge for the Northern District from 1997 to 2003. Prior to taking the bench, Lee served as U.S. Attorney for the Northern District from 1970 to 1973, having been nominated for the position at 31. He also practiced in Allen County from September 1962 to March 1970. In January 1963, he was appointed Deputy Prosecuting Attorney for Allen County. From January 1967 to September 1969, he served as Chief Deputy Prosecutor. Lee returned to the practice of law as a trial lawyer in May 1973 after his term as U.S. Attorney. His reputation as a trial attorney grew, and he was nominated to a fellowship in the American College of Trial Lawyers in his first year of eligibility. Throughout his career, Lee was involved with providing continuing legal education to practicing lawyers and legal services to the indigenous, according to the federal court. In addition to his legal career, Lee was very active in community affairs, including serving on the boards of directors for over 20 different organizations. 
Going south, the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Indiana, Judge James Patrick Hanlon, granted class certification to plaintiffs challenging Indiana's 2023 law banning gender transition procedures for minors. SEA 480 prohibits physicians and other practitioners from knowingly providing gender transition procedures to a minor and from aiding or embedding another physician or practitioner to do so. The procedures banned by the statute include the use of puberty-blocking drugs, cross-sex hormone therapy, and gender reassignment surgery. Hanlon enjoined the law in June, and now the injunction is before the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Besides an injunction, the plaintiffs sought class certification, which they received as three classes and two subclasses. According to court records, appellate oral arguments are scheduled for 9.20 a.m. on February 16th in Chicago. Now let's go over to you, Daniel, for some news from the Indiana Supreme Court. The Indiana Supreme Court has ruled that state statute authorizes trial courts to retain cash bail for the payment of public defender fees, but an indigency hearing is required before the cash can be retained for most other fines, fees, and costs. The High Court issued its January 30th opinion in a partial remand. The case began in November 2021 when Taylor Spells spit on a police officer who was trying to break up a fight outside an Indianapolis bar. Spells was arrested and charged with level 6 felony battery by bodily waste and Class A misdemeanor resisting law enforcement. A woman named Diane Roll paid Spells $250 cash bond. Roll and Spells also signed an agreement pursuant to Indiana Code 3533-8-3.2, permitting the Marion Superior Court to retain the cash to pay the costs of representation and fines, costs, fees, and restitution. A public defender was appointed for Spells, which came with a $100 supplemental fee. Spells was convicted at a bench trial on the battery charge and was sentenced to 365 days, with 363 days suspended and 40 hours of community service. She was also ordered to pay a $20 fine and $185 in fees and costs, although she was found indigent as to probation fees. Later, the trial court granted the probation department's request to apply $245 from Spell's cash bond to her fine, costs, and fees, leaving $60 still owed. Spells completed her community service, and her conviction was reduced to a misdemeanor. She then appealed, arguing the trial court had not adequately inquired into her ability to pay the fines, costs, and fees. After the Court of Appeals of Indiana affirmed the trial court's decision, the Indiana Supreme Court granted transfer to Spells' case. The High Court rejected Spells' argument that the phrase, quote, publicly paid costs of representation, unquote, did not include her $100 supplemental public defender fee. It also disagreed with Spell's contention that state law only allows retention of costs that the trial court may order after an indigency determination. But the court examined whether the trial court made an adequate indigency determination on the retention of $143 in fines, fees, and costs in Spell's case. The High Court pointed to Indiana Code 3533-7-6.5a, which requires courts to consider assets, income, and necessary expenses in making an indigency determination. 
In Spell's case, the justices determine remand is necessary. Quote, we find it a close question whether the trial court's inquiries were adequate under the standard we set out today, Justice Christopher Goff wrote, noting that, quote, the court entered its order without knowing for sure the amount of Spell's income or any necessary expenses like rent or prenatal health care, end quote. Goff continued, quote, we think that the trial court, having found Spell's indigent as to representation and probation fees, should have investigated more deeply just what Spell's could afford to pay in fines, costs, and other fees. The high court concluded, quote, on these facts and under the standard announced in this opinion, we conclude that the trial court did not undertake a sufficient indigency inquiry, end quote. Staying at the State House, I have a few updates on some bills that we've been following this legislative session. As we begin to approach the halfway point in the legislative session, here's an update on some of the bills that we have been following. House Bill 1238 on competency to stand trial passed out of the House and is now awaiting a Senate committee appointment. The bill would allow for a court to dismiss criminal charges without prejudice if the defendant has a certain diagnosis and the defendant is charged with a misdemeanor or a level 6 felony. The bill would also require the Division of Mental Health and Addiction to establish a training program to certify a competency evaluator to assist a court in determining competency. House Bill 1101 on courts for children three years of age and younger in need of services has passed the House and is awaiting to be assigned a Senate committee. The bill would establish a safe baby court as a type of problem-solving court. Senate Bill 14, which addresses the right of certain persons to carry a handgun in the State House and State Capitol Complex, has passed the Senate and is now awaiting to be assigned to a House committee. The bill would allow the State Attorney General, Secretary of State, Treasurer, and Comptroller and their staff members to carry a handgun if they are not otherwise barred by state or federal law. Members of the General Assembly are already allowed to carry a handgun in the State House. Be sure to keep an eye on our website for more coverage of family law and other judicial legislation. Back to you, Daniel. You have news on the state's Civic Health Index. What's happening there? There are a lot of areas where Hoosiers could make strides in improving the state's civic health, but Indiana's voter registration numbers continue to be the most significant problem. That's a key finding from the 2023 Indiana Civic Health Index, a report released by the Indiana Bar Foundation and its partners in the Indiana Civics Coalition. The 2023 INCHI is the sixth edition of the report, which was first released in 2011. Charles Dunlap, the Bar Foundation's president and CEO, said there are some areas where Indiana has demonstrated strong civic health. For example, Dunlap pointed to the new state requirement, which began in January, that all sixth grade students take one semester of civics education. He said Indiana is one of only seven states with a middle school civics requirement. But voter registration and turnout remaining daunting challenges in Indiana. The INCHI lists formal participation in the electoral process in the form of voter registration and turnout as the state's most significant civic health challenge. According to the report, Indiana ranked 50th in the nation in voting in 2022, with a national voting rate of 52.2% exceeding Indiana's 41.9%. 
Quote, it should be noted that Indiana consistently placed in the bottom 10 of all states on midterm voter turnout since 2010. The presidential election year turnout was even less encouraging, end quote, the report states. In 2012, Indiana ranked 36 in voter turnout, but by 2020, the state's rank in presidential election years fell to 46. The state's voter registration ranking has consistently fallen between 2010 and 2022, according to the report, with its most recent rank of 40th at 66.5%. Quote, it is in the area of voter registration that the most significant impact can be made in preparation for the upcoming 2024 election, especially with the concentrated focus on registration of Hoosier youth, the report says. And now turning to leadership in law. Nominations for Indiana Lawyers' 2024 Leadership in Law Awards are now open. Nominations for the Distinguished Barrister, Up-and-Coming Lawyer, Legal Support Stars, and Lifetime Achievement Awards can be submitted online through 11.59 p.m. on March 5th. Since 2006, the Leadership in Law Awards have honored 15 Distinguished Barristers who have practiced law for at least 20 years, as well as 15 up-and-coming lawyers who have practiced for 10 years or less. Beginning in 2021, Indiana Lawyer also began recognizing legal support stars who enhanced the practice of law through their work as paralegals or other legal support staff. Also in 2021, Indiana Lawyer introduced the Lifetime Achievement Award, its most prestigious honor. The Lifetime Achievement Award honors a lawyer whose contributions to the legal profession are so remarkable that they merit singular recognition. Previous winners of the Lifetime Achievement Award include former Congresswoman Susan Brooks, Lacey Johnson of Taft, Statinius, and Hollister, Senior Judge Sarah Evans Barker of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Indiana, and former Indiana Chief Justice Randall Shepard. The 2024 Leadership and Law Awards will honor recipients in all four categories, Award criteria and nomination information are available online. Recipients will be honored at an event in Indianapolis on May 30th. Finally, to wrap up this week's headlines, I will be profiling an Indianapolis mother in the story of her two boys and lawmakers' efforts to provide permanency for our next print issue. House Bill 1310 on Children in Need of Services was amended on second reading to have the bill go into effect when it is signed rather than in the summer. The mother has a termination of parental rights hearing scheduled for May, but if the bill goes into effect, that could change things. You can find my story in the February 14th print edition. Okay, that'll do for this week's headlines. As always, if you want more legal news, check us out at theindianalawyer.com. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear my interview all about Indie Bar. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. I have with me today in the studio David Duncan, IndyBar's newest president. David works as in-house counsel at Scanel Properties, a real estate development company focusing on industrial warehouse development. 
He has worked there for just over eight years now. David was previously a partner at Bose McKinney and Evans LLP. After graduating from Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law, he was an associate at Tabard Hahn Ernest and Weddle LLP. David, to start, tell us how long you have been with the Indianapolis Bar Association Board. Yeah. Um, so I actually got involved, started attending my first indie bar events when I was a law student. So that would have been 2001 through approximately 2004. Um, in that three-year period, I was a clerk, a law student clerk at Tabert Honors and Weddell. My mentors there, Greg Hahn and Lanny Ernest, were both heavily involved in the Bar Association their entire careers. And it wasn't even really an option. I mean, they they asked me to attend events, but it was also like very clear that like you're going to attend events and you're going to get involved in the Indy Bar Association and it's the right thing to do. And it was great. Like the first meetings when you first start going, you don't know people. It's it's awkward, just like, you know, high school is awkward or middle school. And, you know, it, it's it's the same. You, you always start over from kind of that base level. But once you get through that, um, the rewards from the Indy Bar and being involved, the friendships I've made, um, the projects I've worked on, it's very rewarding. So I, I've been involved in some form or fashion since, I'll call it 2002, but I didn't really get fully engaged with the bar until probably around 2006, I would say. I think Marcy Reddick, who was not at Tabert Hahn, but just a real estate practitioner, she was the chair of the chairperson of the Indiana Board of Zoning Appeals. And I had a very difficult case in front of that BZA regarding a client that had worked over, I think, two or three stop work notices. And I was trying to come in and, and fix it for, for this client who just didn't know better. But, you know, there's always a story there. Anyhow, Marcy, being a seasoned practitioner, it was very, very, uh, her decorum was very good. She was very deferential to my case. She asked all the right questions and politely voted against me <laughs> unanimously with the rest of the board members. But after that, Marcy asked me out to, to lunch and wanted to introduce herself, thought that I'd done a great presentation and had done good service for my client, but it just was a bad case. Um, and invited me to participate on the Indy Bar's Real Estate and Land Use Executive Committee. And so that was really my first invitation to get involved in leadership with Indy Bar. Did you ever expect that you may, you know, become Indie Bar president one day? No. I mean, I it, it's a tough question. I, I've always kind of had a policy, you know, ever since being in law school, I didn't really want to be involved in something I wouldn't want to run, right? Like if I get, I'm, I'm the type of personality that, you know, maybe, maybe you call it a control freak, but when I get involved in something, I want to be involved in a very meaningful way. And I want to make sure that I'm dedicating my time to things that are that important to me, that, that I want to be um, in a real leadership position of and have a vested interest in the outcome of what we're working on. So I, I always saw myself being involved as a leader in some form or fashion, but I don't know that I ever thought I would be president of Indy Bar. And, and mostly that's because when I look at the presidents that have come before me, and I'm sure that will come after, they're what I would consider real lawyers' lawyers, right? Like they're the litigators. They go in front of judges and juries. It's, it's, it's the kind of romantic version of what you think of a, a lawyer after reading To Kill a Mockingbird or watching you know, LA Law or, or what have you. So in that regard, I am a, a unique president, right? To be in-house counsel, a real estate attorney, 
Um, it's just not as common for that type of, of lawyer to be president of a bar association, I guess. Yeah, certainly. So what are some of your goals uh, as president for 2024? Yeah. So luckily, my goals for 2024 are somewhat dictated by the strategic, strategic planning that the Indy Bar undertakes every three years or so. So the way that we set up our chain of succession on president, you're actually elected two years out. So currently we have the first vice president and the second vice president coming up behind me. So that's Lee Christie and Katie Lindsay Jackson. I'm sorry, Katie Jackson Lindsay. And they will be uh, president after me for two years. And so the way it works is when you're second vice president, you start getting copied on all the emails. So you just get kind of a baseline understanding of what the issues of the day are and kind of what the surprises are that come up during your presidency. And you get to, to see kind of how we deal with issues. And then by, and you're involved in the strategic planning process. By the time that you're first vice president and you're a year out, you're really heavily involved on planning and getting your year in shape and getting all of the portions of the strategic plan that align with your year kind of planned out and getting leaders in positions to, to start helping on that. And we also last year revised the vice presidents. We, we changed it so that each of the four vice presidents are appointed for a two-year process their vice presidency ties out to a specific initiative on the strategic plan. And I got to appoint to, Lee Christie got to appoint to, and then when Lee's president, the two that, that will be rolling off will be appointed by Katie. And so it, it's really kind of, we're, we're gearing towards making sure that we're accomplishing our goals and objectives that way. Personally, like outside of our strategic plan, personally, my goal is not to break anything. <laughs> I, I want to make sure that I've got a good understanding of our budget, where some of our shortfalls are, in particular membership and some of the things that we've, we've had issues with in the past years. And I want to focus on increasing membership. I want to focus on increasing lawsuit engagement. You can imagine that, you know, during the COVID years, we didn't have the one-on-one -on -one contact that we typically have with law students. And now when we start to look at our membership and the, the practitioners that are two, two to four years out, those that were in law school during COVID, those numbers are slipping. And I think that's a detriment to those young lawyers. I think it's ultimately a detriment to the new bar and our entire legal community. And so we're going to do our best to focus on you know, building those numbers back up, making that outreach, getting them back into the fold, and doing our part to make sure we're getting some some more personal contact with the law students to kind of reinforce the benefits of being a member of the Indy Bar. Do you foresee any challenges for Indy Bar this year? So I have been around long enough to know that you know it's it's, it's the old adage: it's always the board you don't see that gets you right. So you know when when Andy Campbell was president nobody would have foreseen a global pandemic coming, right? And I can't even imagine what, what is or isn't coming. Generally, I'm encouraged that it's a, you know, it's a short session on the legislative side, and I don't see any really controversial legal issues that, cause, that are causing our sections 
um, to raise the alarm bell and talk about, you know, kind of unintended consequences and how it's going to impact our practice, those sorts of things. So those types of challenges are off the table, hopefully. Right. I just jinxed myself, jinxed the bar, but hopefully those types of challenges are off the table. So really it's a matter of focusing on membership and making sure that we're, we're doing a really good job of getting our, our personal outreach and asking people that have been members, but have, have gone away, why they went away, reinforcing the value that we bring, the prop, the value proposition that we have and figuring out what it is that we can do to, to, that we haven't been doing to add value, to give us new opportunities with, with people that maybe haven't been members. Yeah. What are some of the more significant changes that you've seen at IndyBar since you've been a member? Yeah. So early in my, in my involvement, a lot of the bigger firms in town, larger firms that were Indianapolis based firms at the time, they were cutting big checks every year, you know, 10, 15, $20,000. And you had 10 of those firms. And when you looked at our budget back then, it was heavily weighted towards the, the large and medium sized law firms. That's changed significantly, not only in Indy, but, but across kind of Metro bar associations our size across the country. You know, there's been a lot of acquisition in the medium to large size of firms where you have now national and regional firms that have that have consolidated and they don't have the same local presence that they used to. So if you think about like Bingham McHale's now Denton's, that's a, one of the largest global firms that there is out there, Fagery Drinker, et cetera. And so we still get support from the local attorneys and those law firms, but it's certainly not the same level that we had 20 years ago. And the other thing that the opportunity of that is that now a lot of our, of our dues revenue and our sponsorship revenue comes from smaller firms who are a lot more, you know, there's a lot more attorneys on the whole number wise. And the fact that we're now engaging with those members and growing that membership base and getting them to come back, that's all in my mind generally positive, but it's been a pretty significant change in the, in the makeup, the cross section of our membership. Yeah. So I guess, you know, to kind of switch gears a little bit and focus a little bit more on you, um, you know, what kind of inspires you? <laughs> my wife and kids. Uh, I know that's maybe cliche, but um, just the Sarah is uh, she's really got it a gift of working with people directly in her social skills. And just she's always got this way of, I'll, you know, be in an event with her and come into a conversation after saying hi to somebody. She's talking with somebody and they're they just like completely open with Sarah and so engaging. And and I just think she's got this way of welcoming and kind of immediately relating to people. And I wish I had more of that. And when I look at my my kids, they definitely some of that's rubbed off on them. But just the, you know, seeing the adversity that they face on a day-to-day -day basis and they overcome it, right? And they each in their own way, but it, it's inspiring and it makes me, it puts the problems that I face with on a daily basis in perspective and kind of serves as a source of inspiration to get up and go go fight the good fight. Yeah. Um, whenever, you know, you're not working and... Um doing your work at Indy Bar and at Scanal Properties, you know, what are some of your hobbies? Yeah. So I used to be a big golfer. Um, not so much within, I'd say, the past three or four years. Um, now 
it is, you know, due, due to all of the conflicts with soccer and dance and baseball and all of the things that, that, you know, our children and our lives kind of draw us in all these different directions. I, it's sad to say, but I don't have a lot of time for hobbies. It's just not, you know, golf is just gone. And, and I don't, I, I miss it, but I don't, right? Like the time that I get to spend watching my kids kind of become successful in, in their own little individual way is awesome. And it's so rewarding. So I think that's a bit of a hobby. As far as like kind of getting rid of stress at the end of the day and, and trying to unwind, um, I would say it's running. Right. I, I, I'm not a marathoner. I've, I don't have the ambition to be like a competitive runner in that regard. I'm more of the I'll sign up for a mini marathon just to give myself a goal to work towards. But it's it's a big stress reliever. And so most of the time, if I'm not with the family going to soccer, baseball or whatever, um, it's it's running with friends. Yeah. So kind of going back to Indie Bar, you know, what is you know something that you're looking forward to the most in your new role? So this this goes kind of hand in hand with leaving private practice and going in-house. There are definitely things in private practice that I won't miss, you know, entering the billable hour at the end of every day, dealing with, you know, problem clients that are hard to manage and some of the just the political nature of a large law firm, right? Like you won't miss that stuff. But interacting with people interacting with our peers on a regular basis and being more involved with attorneys um, outside of your immediate area and kind of hearing what makes them tick, what what we can do to make their practice better and being involved in, in the process of kind of building a, a organization that serves all of our members and addresses their concerns that that are legitimate and and not only impact their practice but impact their clients lives like that's very rewarding to me and it's one of the things that I look forward to the most like that that level of interaction with with other practicing attorneys is just it's great yeah absolutely yeah I think that covers a lot of the the questions did you have anything else you kind of wanted to add that I didn't think to ask you no, I, I, this is great. I really appreciate the time. Indie Bar is a, is a terrific organization. The Indie Bar Foundation, which is the fundraising arm um, of the Indie Bar, is you know, where I got my start. It's an equally good organization. I would encourage all of our listeners to get involved in both Indie Bar and the Indie Bar Foundation and to support our efforts. Um, the best way to do that here currently is to sign up to attend Indie Bar's Got Talent. Um, you can buy tickets online. It's going to be on February 10th at the Vogue Theater. And I look forward to seeing you there. Yeah. Do you, Are you going to have a talent that you're going to show off? I don't. I can't carry a <laughs> tune. I've never <laughs> been able to. Um, but my wife and children don't have that same conf, you know, affliction. So maybe I'll get them to sign up for something. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's exciting. All right. So that'll do for this week's interview. David, thank you again for joining me today. To our listeners, head over to the IndianaLawyer.com to hear our past interviews. You can also find us on your favorite podcast apps. We'll talk to you soon.